Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Android Bytes, powered by Esper. This is a special one because we're here in the office recording, actually here in Bellevue, Washington, and it's a beautiful, cloudy day, so pretty powerful. I'm David Ruddick, and my co-host Michelle Raman. Obviously, we talk about Android every week, but our guest this week is Varun Chitrai, who is basically the lead here on our distro based on AOSP, or essentially our operating system, which we call Foundation. So, Varun, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Varun. We want to talk about, well, we're not here to talk specifically about Foundation because, you know, there's a lot we will hold off on talking about right now until we're ready. But we do want to talk about when David and I joined Esper, there were a lot of questions like, what the heck is Esper? How are you related to Android? Like, why do you have two journalists from Android publications joining Esper? And to be honest, when we first joined, it's kind of hard for us to explain that. But after spending a whole lot of time thinking about enterprise topics, thinking about DevOps, thinking about getting Android onto devices where Google typically doesn't think about, or most companies don't think about, the picture becomes a lot clearer of why what Esper is doing is important and why it's necessary. So I kind of want to just break down a lot of those topics and try to explain what it is we're basically trying to solve here at Esper. So to start out with, I want to talk about something every consumer is familiar with. If you're buying a new phone every like two, three years, or like if you're a tech reviewer like us every, every couple of months, you have to be going to set up your device, right? Like there's no seamless setup for your personal phone. You get your phone, you unbox it, you turn it on, go through the setup process, put in your Wi-Fi credentials, like Google account. And in fact, apps, this led to uh, your apps. Yeah. It's, this has led to a bevy of OEM tools that are all pretty bad. I'm yes. designed to address this. Yeah. As I'm sure you've done, the reviewers, we hate this. It is so annoying setting up a new device. There's so many steps you have to do. Now imagine you're an enterprise buying not just one device, but a thousand devices or one for every store you want to put a device in. Imagine having to do that for every device. It would take forever. So it's, it's completely unreasonable to do that, which is why Android, you know, there's a concept of provisioning the device, which is the same thing as, as setting up a device. And if you have to set up a thousand devices, you don't want to do that manually. You want to automate that. And that's why Android has a way to provision devices automatically using some, what you call templates. Like yeah. you set up yeah. a template, you say, this is how I want this device to be configured. And I want this to be applied to a thousand devices. When you want to provision a thousand devices, you have to get that template onto a thousand devices. The thing is a lot of these devices, they come from factories in China, right? They install the OS out of the box, but those devices aren't meant to have whatever configuration you want pre-installed. So once you get the devices, you have to still do one step, at least manually. You got to configure, get that template onto that device somehow, which usually involves scanning a QR code, tapping with NFC or signing on the Wi-Fi and then you end up downloading the provisioning template remotely. Google considers this zero-touch enrollment. If you go on the website, they have a glossary device of terminology. They say zero-touch enrollment is the process of setting up your device zero-touch. But if you're still having to touch a device to scan a QR code or tap NFC, I, I don't know like, if you really call that zero-touch, Varun. It is. A, yeah. Yeah. Primarily, these devices, when this is zero-touch, the first requirement is essentially is to connect these devices to the network, which requires a touch, which kind of defeats the purpose of calling it zero touch. So they're really not zero touch. It requires manual intervention in getting those devices and getting them started in the provisioning process. Right. So what is some theoretical way you could solve this? Like, is there any way you could have true zero touch? 
There is, yes. So with Esper Foundation, we do that. And just to touch up lightly on, on that topic is the one way of, of doing this is embedding Wi-Fi credentials or access point names uh, and, or activating those access point names uh, by default on the devices could be one of the things where we solve the first block or where the devices are required to connect to a network. So if these credentials are already part of the operating system in a secure form, we are pretty much ready to go where the agent can take over and allow for a, a provisioning process happen end to end without any requirement of tap or a touch anywhere. And so to expand a little bit on that, to give some context for people who may not understand provisioning as like an enterprise concept, the reason you do this, it's the same reason, for example, if you've ever been in IT and worked in a Windows environment, you image machines all the time to your latest known good build and configuration because you want them all to be as similar and consistent as humanly possible. That means changing a lot of things. You probably have customizations in there. Now for an Android-based kind of platform, it's going to be a little bit different. But in general, you have the same kind of problems, wants, and needs that are happening there. You want the device to behave in a certain way. You want them all to behave that way. And you want a way to enforce that behavior. So if you have a thousand devices you have to do, this process is typically called kitting in the IT world, where somebody has to literally open the box, take the thing out, turn it on, go through that six tap provisioning method that if you're using, you know, Android for Enterprise, you would have to do. And you have to do that for every single device. There are entire companies built on providing a service around this. So it is a real problem. Indeed. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the, the six tabs are in the QR code scanning or, or the AFW methodology, which is again, much, much longer in provisioning. None of these address that basic problem of these companies where they want to scale up and provision these devices at a large scale. So none of these methodologies actually address this problem. So it is indeed a, a big problem and that has been overlooked for far too long. Right. Another thing we want to talk about is like what happens once you actually provision the device as you wanted, you actually configure it with the template it's set up and running. Afterwards, it's an Android device, you know, it's a computer. So there's a lot of things an end user who's using that device could do with it. How do you, as an enterprise or in a company, ensure that that configuration you initially set up stays the way it is, that it doesn't fall out of compliance? So like, if you have a policy, you don't want any of your employees to sideload applications on it, right? How do you ensure that that policy is enforced? Well, the way that happens is you got to use an application that's just like a, um, yeah application with a lot of privileged access to APIs that aren't accessible to normal applications. We typically call those apps mobile device management apps, like in general, across operating systems, that's what you call them, MDM apps. On Android, the apps that use those APIs to manage those configurations, you call them device owners or profile owners. Yeah. You'll see those terms a lot and it's a little confusing when you first look at it, but it's really simple to understand. A device owner is just the MDM app that manages the entire profile configuration of the device, while a profile owner is just the same thing, but only for a specific profiles. So, you know, Android, you can set multiple profiles on an Android device. If you have a work profile, the app that manages all the configuration of the work profile is the profile owner. An app that controls all the profiles and everything on the device is the device owner. And the distinction there in terms of what those devices actually do and look like, if you have a device owner, you're probably dealing with a corporate-owned device where a company owns this thing or an organization and they're using it for a fairly specific purpose or because they have highly sensitive communications if it's a general purpose device. Now, if you just have a profile owner, which is probably much more common in terms of the MDM space, that's something where a corporation setting an employee can bring a BYOD phone essentially to work or maybe a laptop. And then they can have a managed profile that still follows all of your corporate security and data policies and all that kind of stuff. So it's really built 
these tools are built around, I would say, like management of how people use devices versus necessarily how devices are used themselves. Yeah, right. And the, the other difference I wanted to highlight is like between the device owner and profile owner is device owner provides much wider control on the device, whereas profile owner, there are limitations on what all things can be done with the profile owner. So usually for dedicated devices, device owner is one of the things that MDM apps tend to follow or enter into a device owner mode instead of a profile owner. Yeah, for anyone who has to use a corporate device so that brought your own device to work, they probably made you install something like Microsoft Into. It's like one of those common MDM apps to use, like to manage your work profile. And if you've installed a work profile before, you know that Android has a lot of things built around that. Like you have separate folders, launcher for your apps. You can schedule your work profile on and off. All these features and these APIs were kind of built, as David mentioned, around the consumer use case. Like, yeah, you actually using a phone and specifically a phone, right? For devices that Google typically doesn't think of installing GMS on or devices that aren't able to run GMS for whatever reason they can't license GMS, like a lot of these features weren't really built for that and they're not even accessible to them. Basically, I, I want to talk about next, like device owner, profile owner apps. They're able to do a lot of things because enterprises should be able to set policies and should be able to control a lot of functionality on the device. But I wanted to ask you, in your experience, what are some of the really privileged things that device owner apps, profile owner apps can do that normal apps can't? The, the things that device owner apps can do are, is like trigger a factory reset or restart a device. So these basically control the device's functionality where a regular app can't do it, obviously, because it could be abused. It's not necessary for regular apps to have these. But for the device policy controllers or the DPCs, as we call it, um, these are essential functions and these make these apps super powered compared to regular apps, which have access to the standard Android SDKs. But I will go even further, even with the device policy controllers and the APIs that Google provides for the device policy controllers and all the additional access that they get, there are still gaps where these APIs still fall short. There are certain things that the DPCs can't do. For example, I would give, and here is uh, toggling the mobile data on a device. So. Controlling a network on our device is a very important for an enterprise uh, who basically is giving that device out and they basically own that device. So in order to control the network is one of the critical parts of it. And a lack of any API, not just for the standard Android apps, but even for the device policy controller APIs. There's no API right now which allows us to do it, do a uh, toggle mobile data um, or, you know, control the mobile tethering. So... Things like that are something that even the DPCs can't do. And this is where, um, and it's not like these APIs don't exist. They exist. It's just that they're not exposed to any of the, uh, not just for standard apps, but uh, even the DPCs. So he, this is where one has to go it at the platform level in order to access those APIs. They would have to have privileged access to those APIs. That means that they have to be platform apps, which most of the MDMs can't have because they intend to run on this variety of devices. And in order to gain platform access, it has to be signed by a, a thing called platform key, uh, which basically uh, tells the operating system that you can provide access to the original APIs to these apps. So this is one of the things that the DPCs can't do. And this is where we have to look at the platform APIs. And this is where uh, Esper Foundation also shines because we have a way to address this problem. This touched on a lot of topics we've talked about before, like on our episode with Ilya and Joao, we've talked about Android permissions. Privileged prevent permissions is something we talked about a lot. Like if you were able to install an application as a privileged application, 
and you sign it the same key that you sign the rest of like the Android framework, then you have access to so many permissions that just aren't available to any other application that are installed by the user, including device owners. Those are all generally installed by the user and they're given privileged access to many APIs that aren't allowed by other applications, but they're still limited to what Google actually provides. You can go on the Android SDK website and like see all the APIs that device owner apps have access to. It's all under the, like, the android.app.admin namespace. There's a whole bunch of APIs there. They even, they add some new stuff, like in Android 13, you can now set a policy that restricts Wi-Fi SSIDs. Like you can set an allow list or a block list. That kind of stuff, if you had privileged API access, you could probably do that releases ago. But because you're limited to what Google provides in the Android SDK, as an enterprise, you're limited in what you can do with your device policy controller app. Obviously, Google has some motivations there of their own in terms of, okay, why wouldn't we make this available at the API level? They have to gauge in what way could this potentially be abused at a consumer application? Do we have the right guardrails in place to ensure things don't break? So it's not necessarily that Google is trying to like hold things back, but more yeah. that they want to avoid unintended consequences, whether you're giving developers or even manufacturers access. We know that both can make very bad decisions at times <laughs> with tools. On the flip side, though, like if you're a corporation, this is a device you fully own, then like, why can't you have that level of full control? Right. Like, why should you be limited to just the APIs that are offered by the Android SDK? Why can't you just use the same thing that all the system apps do? And of course, the answer is only just because that's the way it's set up, right? There's no, yeah. you can, there's no way to elevate your privilege to what system apps use unless you are like the device maker or you're the one who's signing the firmware, right? You can't do that if you're just they're an enterprise buying a device from an OEM or an ODM because you're just not involved in the production of that device itself. No, and I mean, at least not without throwing an absurd amount of money at some company. I mean, I, I don't think Samsung would get out of bed for probably less than eight figures to customize a firmware image for an Android device. I mean, it's probably sounds easy in a vacuum, but you're talking about moving big pieces of kind of corporate machinery to make things like this happen. If you're like, I need 15,000 of these, well, Samsung probably makes millions of devices a day globally in total, not Android devices, but at large. And figuring out like, okay, how do you fit into that supply chain? Like, what are the processes? Does Samsung even have a business process around this? They, they might not actually, <laughs> that might not be a thing. So it's not just as easy as go customize your own firmware. This is a challenge that has to be resolved from the planning stage. You have to be thinking about these things. Yeah. And speaking of those, those APIs where th these decisions where uh, uh, Google simply has not given access to those APIs, even for the device owners, the DPCs here as, as we speak, it kind of doesn't make sense. For example, I would give here is the ability to request a bug report on a device because most of these enterprises run into an issue where this app simply stops working and they need more information out of it. You request a bug report and it shows a prompt on the device that you have to approve. Now, this is the enterprise-owned device. Why would a device sitting in a grocery store should show a prompt like that to a, a person who is at the reception and who would need to know, like, they need to approve that request? Yeah. So these are a few of the limitations that are DPC APIs. Yeah, and it's something that we would not make sense to expose that in any kind of consumer application. Yeah because there's no situation in which that would promote a positive outcome for the user. <laughs> yeah. Really annoying. Yeah, bug reports, if you haven't taken a look, they pretty much dump like everything, yeah. every detail about every account, every service, every app. It's way more involved than just like a log cat. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it makes sense why you wouldn't want that exposed to user apps on, on a consumer device. But if 
to your corporation, you fully own a device. Of course, you want that level of detail. Right. Your, it's your data. You own it. You should be able to access it in whatever context you want. And I think that that is really a good way to kind of draw one of the more philosophical differences between these dedicated use corporate devices and what you would consider a normal Android device, whatever it may be, a wearable or a smartphone or a tablet. You know, these companies or organizations that are using these things, they own everything on it end to end. It is fully theirs. And so they want unfettered access to a lot of things that even some company as large as Samsung probably has no business being involved in with their Android products. They wouldn't be able to add anything. It wouldn't probably even be useful to them. Right. Let's say you have a fleet of devices that you want to mention. Say you have thousands, as I mentioned, devices in like corporate stores, Taco Bell, for example. The question then is like, how do you send and retrieve data from those devices? If you have GMS on those devices, then Google provides you a lot of methods to configure apps, install apps. You know, they, they have their own entire playing based approach. But a lot of these devices for potentially business reasons or technical reasons, they don't use GMS, right? Maybe they don't want to use the license. They don't want to pay the licensing fees for GMS. AOSP is totally open source. You can go with AOSP if you want to. Or they can't get GMS because they're building a device that just can't be licensed. Because if you look at the compatibility and the definitions, Google only officially recognizes like a handful of categories. Right. Like they handhelds or smartphone-sized devices or foldables. They recognize tablets. There's uh, televisions. There's watches. And there's automotive and these aren't generic definitions. They are actually quite specific yeah. too. Like you have to have a minimum screen size to identify as a handheld. And even then there are resolution requirements and much more technical things in terms of the way the device behaves, its hardware capabilities, things it has to be able to do that may not make any sense at all for a dedicated use device to have. If you have a requirement for, I'm not saying Google does, but if they had a requirement for NFC on devices, well, that wouldn't make any sense probably in the enterprise world, right? That would just be wasted money. You don't need that. Right. Like most people don't probably just think of Android as a smartphone OS, but it just, it could run so many things. Like you could run it without the GUI that you wanted to, like they call that headless analyst, right? And there are a few bills, like one is L terminals, I think, and a uh, kiosk. Google recently does license GMS as of like last year. They quietly announced that. And there are some companies that buy GMS license when it's up to the kiosk score. But then like for a lot of companies, it's unnecessary. Do you really need full Google Play store access on a terminal? Maybe not. You know, it depends on your needs, right? If you don't need GMS, then the question becomes, what do you have to do to get around the limitations of not shipping GMS? As we talked about in last week's episode, there are actually quite a lot of things you just do. You, you just can't ship plain old AOSP onto a device and expect it to actually be usable by a consumer, let alone a business, right? So can you tell me some of the limitations in terms of like business use, enterprise use of just shipping AOSP? Shipping just AOSP, the biggest limitation is the updatability of these devices. Shipping AOSP with no updated infrastructure is going to be a big problem for an enterprise because any OS updates that need to happen on these devices can't happen at all because there's no updated infrastructure that's set up. I think it's one of the most important reasons why no one ships AOSP. The other one is in the telemetry, uh, you know, because right now, a lot of things in terms of telemetry, Google actually encapsulates under the GMS framework. We need to go through a lot of hoops, like in, in accessing a place service library from where you can get access to those, those limited points. 
But if you're looking at just plain AOSP, that information is available, but it's not readily available as it, it can be in on, on the GMS device. Right. So like, as we mentioned last week, like AOSP provides a lot of the hooks you need to build these features, but not the actual implementations. Yeah. For example, yeah. to update the device, AOSP includes update engine, which is like, that's actually the update underscore engine, which yeah. is adapted from Chrome OS. It's how you adapt updates, apply with the updates to a device, but it doesn't provide an OTA infrastructure for you to actually generate an OTA and apply that to a device. Like Google provides partners access, they call it GOTA, Google OTA. Or telemetry, if you have a GMS device, you just have access to Firebase, right? Yeah. If you don't have GMS, then you don't have access to Google Play services, you don't have access to Firebase, you can't pull logs from a device remotely. So like a lot of these things can be done as like APIs, like you could sure we could run Wildcat or really generate a bug report, but then like you need infrastructure to be able to pull all that stuff from a device to send those commands to the device and pull it from a device. And without GMS, Google's like, sorry, you got to build it yourself. Yeah. And uh, another thing I want to highlight on this front that we in the past have struggled a bit in figuring out uh, was the concept of those modes. So when devices are GMS certified, they have the entire GMS support libraries part of those. So Google has whitelisted Firebase or Firebase Cloud Messaging, as they call it, the FCM, to be exempt from the DOS mode. So that allows anyone to communicate to their devices directly, even there on the DOS mode, but they have to use the FCM library to do it. Now, when we are looking at AOSP, the entire GMS service is absent, and there is no replacement in there, uh, which basically protects us from device going into DOS mode and communicating with our device. So basically, if you're shipping with AOSP, if the device enters those mode, then good luck being able to communicate with that device when, when once it enters that those mode. That is also one of the reasons why AOSP might not be an ideal candidate in shipping enterprise use cases, uh, per se. And I think probably the biggest limitation of lacking access to Google Play is the fact that you're missing Google Play, which is the biggest app yeah. repository on the Android. Yeah. Right. If you don't have Google Play, how do you get apps onto the device? You got to build your own method of pushing apps, whether that be using your own app repository. A lot of custom Android distributions use open source solutions like F-Droid, but as an enterprise, you don't want to install arbitrary consumer apps onto your device, right? Yeah. So you need some way to push just those APKs and install just the apps that you want, that you want to put on an allow list. And it's not just a question of getting them there. It's also like integrity of the data. Like, right, you know, right. You want to make sure you own it. You want to make sure it's in a place where it is secured up to your standards and that nobody can get in there in some point in the pipeline and do something that they shouldn't be able to do. You know, it's not just as simple as installing an APK. There's a whole process that comes along with that. And the Google Play Store automates much of this for you. And that's why it's so appealing. It's providing that quality of service assurance to the end user. And that is one of the main reasons you might choose GMS is because right. it really is a kind of just works software distribution solution, as long as your app's okay to put on the Play Store. <laughs> yeah. So even though if you're managing a dedicated device or, or like a fleet of devices, you might only care about one app that you're pushing to devices, right? right? And you have like a few configurations of devices that you're pushing to. Even though the things you care about are a lot less broad in scope compared to an app developer to support multiple different operating systems and thousands of different device types, right? You still have to do consider a lot of the same principles of pushing application updates. You don't want to just push an update 
to all devices all at once at the same time, because what if something went wrong? It's true. And I think that actually speaks to, it is much more important in this. Yeah, in this because, because this, you, you lose real money. Well, like what if all those uh, kiosks at a, at a restaurant just went down all of a sudden? Right. You can't collect revenue. Can't, yeah. That, that's that'd be it, absolutely terrible. So like a lot of the same principles apply, but because you lack GMS, you lack play console access, the AB testing, they draw outs like it's not provided to you, right? AOSP, you got to build out your own ecosystem to do that. You got to build out your own distribution center. That's where companies like things that we offer come into play. Right. And I think Varin, you can probably speak to this really well. Even on the Play Store, the level of granularity and control you have using Google's tools is not appropriate for our customers. It is it is no way scalable for them because their challenges are so much more like you were talking about groups of maybe dozens of devices or even a very small handful of devices, potentially. You need total control. Absolutely. And that is one of the problems that we have struggled a bit as well, like in, when it comes came to Google Play. Sometimes there's delays of minutes. I, I'm saying minutes, I'm, I'm insisting on this because minutes are, are critical. When I, I deployment happens on a particular device and which is critical, then it needs to happen immediately because that's when it was triggered. It was not scheduled. So usually these deployments don't even happen for like 15, 20 minutes and it may be even much, much longer. And not just that, you know, as, as you said, the granular control, because on Google Play Store, you have to deal with different architecture of apps, x86, R maps, and all those, these different architectures that an app is built for. And the APIs do not provide a granular control on what is being published to, to the device. You have to go through a lot of things, and we actually spent a lot of time in figuring out a seamless experience in shipping Play apps, and which is where we recommend uh, our customers to use our version of app management, which is much more seamless. Yeah, and that's part of our cloud platform. And so, you know, you can use that to deliver apps, of course, but it's really about the way you deliver them, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody can put up a cloud and deliver content. That is a solved problem. But what our customers might ask for is like, okay, I want to test on a subset of devices, even in my lab. Maybe I want to test on five out of 12 terminals, and I want to see how that goes. And then at that point, you know, once they're out of the lab, that's when we provide something that very few other places do, which is a way to scale that almost infinitely. You can take that approach and be still have an extreme level of control, but also have a high degree of confidence that what you're doing is actually going to make it to the end device, which is the big challenge, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, talking about like, I guess the, the challenge like the Google Play isn't built to resolve, like what if a device is offline? What if it's just not connected right now? Or what if the user is turned off Wi-Fi and it only wants to update on Wi-Fi, it wants to update on mobile data? You know, there could be a million different things that could happen. And Google Play is not designed to then go get that, basically manage that exception. Google Play is just like, you hit a button, it goes, and it's like, well, however well it worked is however well it worked. <laughs> yeah, and to, to extend to that, these constraints, like you want to update only over Wi-Fi or you want to do it within a particular time window. Google does provide extensions in facilitating that. But when we are dealing with devices from different OEMs, their implementations of GMS strangely differs. Like this is what our experience tells us. There's no consistency in the behavior of these GMS devices also. So this is where us playing a bigger role in ensuring that the updates are delivered on time is important to highlight because with GMS, we have to depend on the entire Google Play ecosystem to route that application and solve requests through all entire Google Play servers and then all regional restrictions that come into play when an application deployment happens, on which we have absolutely no control. We have just say install and we have to 
hope that the installation happens. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between an enterprise quality of service where you essentially expect that you not own the infrastructure, but it's as though you do. Yeah. You are guaranteed a certain quality of service, whereas Google Play, they're vending you that surface. If you give right. them inputs and you get an output eventually that hopefully does what you asked it to do. Whereas in an enterprise level, that's not really acceptable. <laughs> you have to know exactly where the software is going and when. And Vern, you mentioned how like weirdly across different OEMs, like things will be different. That's another thing like I kind of want to talk about is like the experience of like getting devices from different OEMs, because like when it comes to updates, you're completely dependent on that OEM to deliver updates. And sometimes you might get an update that you don't want to install, or if you want to install an update, you're just not getting it from them because they have their own priorities when it comes to delivering updates, right? If you're buying consumer device and using it for enterprise users, then good luck on getting updates, right? They're not going to just go out of their way to give you an update unless they're really important. That's why if you were to own the software stack, if you were building your own operating system image, you could push out updates whenever you want to. You could add your own customizations, your own branding, et cetera. Things you can't do with just the stock out-of-box experience in the operating system. Because just like how you're limited when it comes to device policy controller apps to the APIs provided by the Android SDK, if you don't own the operating system, then you're limited to the update schedule provided by the manufacturer. You don't fully own, even though it's, it's a fully managed and owned device, you have a device owner app, you don't really own the device. You don't own it unless you own the operating system. Yeah, and these updates too, they come with their own problems. Like once they do arrive, when do we want them to be allowed to be installed? So Android does allow, have an API to postpone installation, but there's no such thing as disabled updates. And the maximum postpone install window is about 90 days. And beyond that, you are required to install an update, which makes sense in certain ways, but there are situations where uh, enterprises simply can't do it because they're not required to it, do it. It's not a right time for them to do it. So an ability to control these updates uh, plays a big role. And this is where this inconsistency across OEMs becomes a problem. And based on my like re-understanding, it seems like a lot of enterprises are kind of averse to updating just because of all the problems it could bring. But then again, like, there's good reasons to update, many good reasons, especially when it comes to fixing security vulnerabilities. Well, and it's but, also, but, yeah, I mean, that's the nuance, right? Yeah, you may not want new features, isn't it? I may not care. It's an enterprise, well, what's happening from 12 to 13, but you may care about the intervening year of security patches yeah. that came, yeah. <laughs> came in that time. Like, of course, like Android in the past had many, many security media related vulnerabilities. And of course, there's been a lot of updates, a lot of scares around Bluetooth and a lot of the devices, a lot of the AOSP-based devices that are shipping on market, like a certain very popular bike company that sells bikes. <laughs> Those devices run Android. If you look at what Android version they're running on, pretty sure it's like Android Nougat. Yes. They're ancient, right? <laughs> so like, there's a lot of vulnerabilities that could be exploited if yeah. a user were to escape the kiosk that they basically put those devices into. And if you look it up, I'm pretty sure that people have found easy ways to do that, right? You need a way to keep those devices secure because you can't assume that there's not going to be a hole near your kiosk somewhere. Like there's always going to be something, some way someone figures out some malicious actor or like something in the Bluetooth stack or something yeah. to discover, right? You need to keep those devices updated. And like normally updates aren't really a priority for the manufacturers of these devices because like they're focused on selling the product and the application on there. But the update, the actual OS support, the OS is just there so they can get that product to you. The OS is secondary. 
it shouldn't be secondary because it's so important to the experience. And this goes back to, you know, just the way this industry has been like over probably the past few decades, really 40 probably years now of embedded computing, essentially, which is where this really is birthed out of, even though it's mobile now, is this thought that like you have firmware on the device and firmware is firm. It does not change. You ship with firmware and that's what it does for the rest of its life. But we know in the internet connected age where literally everything now does have to be online you're making yourself in the tap surface. And so you do need to update. And not only that, like more probably interesting to most people, corporations is you can make the product better over time, which is what I think that Esper is uniquely enabling with our platform that really had not been something most companies like in that legacy world would have even thought really possible. Um, they might've associated that experience with like a small medium business that buys a bunch of iPads and can afford to do this. Well, maybe that's a nice vanity project for them, but that's not scalable. Well, scaling that is becoming very, very important because you have all of these highly vertically integrated technology companies coming around like Google, like Amazon, like Microsoft, who have so much scale and control, they can actually build things like this internally and then leverage them in their own products, which is what we see with a lot of products from companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook. So it's an interesting kind of paradigm. Like you're seeing this whole world transform and people call it like digital transformation, but really it's just about like really big old legacy companies discovering that you can push code to things over the internet. <laughs> Let's be realistic about it. The idea that I can change my point of sale software using the wireless, this is a very new thing for some of these companies. And so getting them to accept the idea of updates is a challenge because they're traditionally very scared of them because they just see this is a way to create breakage. And that is the nightmare scenario. And then I can't collect revenue, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So that's why they have this attitude, at least in my view. And you'll find a lot of companies aren't also just afraid of software updates. They're also afraid of hardware updates because Buying new hardware costs money. And of course, the goal is to spend as little money as you can on these products and keep them running as long as possible, which is why you'll see a lot of these devices out in the wild running like ancient builds of Windows, maybe yep. XP. The terminals will like running Windows XP with 20 year old hardware. We've also seen the gas station running Windows. You've seen the gas station windows. You've seen like <laughs> the occasional blue screen of death, like on some random kiosk out in the wild, right? A lot of these devices are ancient, running ancient software, completely outdated, completely unprotected against the latest security threats, you know, because... Don't tell you how they're running trash talking Windows CE. They're not running, because, you know, they're, they're not supported by Microsoft anymore. They're not supported by the vendors anymore. But it's understandable that you don't want to replace all these machines. They're still running. They're running, like, perfectly fine, but they're still running and they're working. So yeah. why throw them out the trash? The good news is you don't have to throw them out the trash because Android... Although Intel kind of backed away, it's going to come back with Celadon, but there is a way to run Android on x86 machines. We've talked about it on the podcast before. We had John West, this OS project, come on. Yep. Android x86 is still being kept alive by multiple parties. There's Google who's building Android x86 images for QMU, just for emulation, just for Android Studio. Although they are doing something interesting with Google Play games on PCs. They haven't really talked about the architecture much. I guess they're probably still building for automotive too, aren't they? Oh yeah, automotive, yeah. Android <laughs> Automotive X86, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's Microsoft also with Amazon and then there's the WSA. You know, there there is some level of support for Android on X86, but there's not really support for the kind of devices that companies are probably thinking, can I get Android on this thing? Like those old 20-year-old terminals, like there's no support for getting Android on this thing. You're on your own. 
Varun, you're an expert on like porting Android to these kinds of devices or like these devices that were definitely not meant around Android. Can you tell us about some of the, the challenges of doing that? So I think the first challenge is getting Android to run on one of the legacy devices because the hardware that these devices have, have so many variations and Windows was tailored to run on these devices traditionally. And that's how Windows was prepared. So the, one of the challenges that we usually run into is ensuring that all hardware is working perfectly during the ordering the process. So it takes a bit of time and some, we do run into some, some issues in getting that done. But once we are through that, and once Android is on, on this platform, the sheer potential of being able to roll out security updates uh, on these devices, because if they're running, let's say Android 11 and Android 12, we can basically see them receiving uh, security updates for the next two to three years, which they can't expect from Windows. That is one of the things that makes all those challenges worth it because that allows enterprises to reuse their existing fleet of devices and continue to support them, utilize the maximum potential that they, these devices offer. Right. And you're introducing a ton of new functionality in the process because you're probably adding support for standards that whatever version of Windows they were on just yep. did not work with. Like web standards a lot. I'm sure you're adding a ton. And just Android in general is a much more lightweight operating system than Windows, so it probably wants way better than whatever Windows version those old devices and brought Yeah, we've, I'm sure, Varun, you've done testing too. We've seen it internally. Like you can see just on raw CPU horsepower, the system is more efficient and so scores higher because it's on the Linux kernel now. It's not running on the Windows kernel, especially in old Windows kernel. <laughs> so you do see some uplift there just naturally because right. that's what it's Something you can try it yourself too, like Android-x86 project or Bliss OS, you could just install on your PC and see how well it runs. It probably runs way better than some like tablet you could buy with like super low end hardware, right? It's going to run like a dream on any modern x86 processor. Just Android in general, it was designed for devices with such yeah. heavy hardware constraints. Yeah, right? battery. It's, yeah. Yeah. Android was day one a mobility operating yeah. system. And we have first-hand testimonials from our customers who have seen that transition happen from Windows to Android and how much benefits they can see with Android running and not just the performance and oral experience running Android, but also the aspects which are important for the business, like app updates. So now they can just focus on just Android app. They don't have focus on Windows app to, to maintain and to have a coherent experience now because Android provides them everything that they can't get from Windows because considering how Windows embedded has been duplicated by Microsoft quite, quite some time ago. Uh, and running Android gives them the full flexibility that they want to continue having without having to worry about replacing that hardware with something else. Right. And actually flipping the device from x86 Windows to x86 Android, it's surprisingly not as difficult of a task as you might think it is <laughs> because thanks to Windows, like the openness generally of like the Google, right? You don't have to go through any steps like you would on an ARM device, right? Yeah. Like I, Windows PC, you could literally boot into Windows, install the Grub bootloader, and then partition the device to have Android on one partition. Yeah. And you could even keep your Windows installation. You could all do it from Windows. So you could even script all this to be automated. Yeah, there's a lot of legacy there from Intel and Microsoft who have built basically architectures and platforms that are designed to be highly portable. The idea with Windows, like I go back to imaging machines, literally just flashing a file to the same computer over and over and over and being able to get the exact same result every time. 
that is really important in the Windows world. So they've built so many workflows and tools around that, that it's installing a new OS on an Intel-based platform is usually pretty easy. Yeah, on the ARM side, though, you don't need to, like, flash a build of Android across multiple different targets. So you need, like, treble support. And that variability of treble support is still contentious. Android 9 launch devices and above will support treble, but the level of support for treble, the compliance will differ. One device might have, like, a broken... RIL radio first layer, whereas another device might have working mobile data when it flashes to GSI. The variability is something that you need to capture. There's a lot of complications. Yeah. If you were to try to build Android and support x86 and ARM targets, if you don't have a lot of operating system experience with Android, then it's just not something vast majority of companies are quick to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, that comes down to Android being first designed to be, it enables human interface, right? That is what Android was built to do. Human interface on a mobile device, and that's what it facilitates and makes really easy for manufacturers of mobile devices, because that's the business. Whereas the business of traditional corporate, like Intel desktop computers or servers like that, they're built around totally different motivations and needs from the customer. Android was always built around the consumer smartphone case. One of the things, though, you mentioned well, or what I mentioned is that you can install Android x86 on a PC. Like there are consumer community projects that let you do so. Android x86 and Bliss OS being two examples of Android distributions that work on x86 PCs. But the thing is, those just like Google's build of Android with GMS is meant for consumers. They're meant to be installed by enthusiasts who want to get Android on their PCs. They're not really meant to be installed and used in a dedicated experience and not meant to be used on dedicated devices. Varun, can you talk about like why an enterprise shouldn't just go out and install Android-X86 or any Android-X86 builds on their own device on their own? Yeah, um, uh, as you said, the, these distributions that are available, they are means to give you an initial experience on how Android looks like on these devices. Like it's targeted towards end users and not enterprises. Uh, because once these operating system is installed on these devices, the ability to update that those devices uh, over the air is lacking in these distributions. So, and which is kind of critical for enterprise customers in general. And these distributions are not fully enterprise ready in order to address all the things that are required to onboard a MDM on, on these platforms. So I think which is why an enterprise can't just go ahead and install an, an Android x86 project based build or um, on these devices. And I think that gets back to something uh, the CEO of Esper here, Yadu Kaplan, says, which is really that to solve these problems, you essentially have to become the kind of company that builds platforms and clouds and operating systems. Like you have to start building a lot of these things yourself. And you, do you really want to do that? And the answer for most enterprises is, of course not. Why would we want to do that? We're solving a problem that could be scaled to many different people in salute or different um, industries but for one specifically, and that doesn't make any business sense. That's why you would work with a partner like Esper to help you create that infrastructure and still have ownership over it, but do so with a partner that is going to guarantee you the quality of service and the kind of features and quality of life things that you would expect in an enterprise management kind of platform versus an MDM, which is again, more around that kind of BYOD scenario we talked about, or maybe even a GMS device that could be maybe not necessarily a bad fit for what you're trying to do, but can introduce delays, headaches, and could limit you potentially down the road in terms of the evolution of your devices and your software strategy. So if any of that clicks with you, come talk to us at Esper, and we're at esper.io. 
And this has been another episode of the Android Bytes podcast. Thank you again to Vareen for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we can do this again in the future. Yeah. Definitely next time. Maybe next quarter from back in the office, all three of us. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right. See you guys next week.